Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Brendan Cropley. Brendan is a professor of sports coaching at the University of South Wales, so welcome to the show, Brendan. Thank you, James. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we delve into today's episode, Brendan, can we go back to the beginning of why you got into sports psychology? Ah, oh, right, flaming heck. Um, so, but basically, I was, I was playing football um, um, for Norwich City, and I think one of one of the major factors about um, the quality of my performances whilst I was there was the psychological element, and unfortunately, whilst I had I worked with some unbelievable coaches and some really nice people. It it wasn't the sort of thing that that we kind of talked about. It was still taboo. It probably is still now, but it was quite taboo at the time. And so you kind of had to try and deal with some of the psychological aspects associated with performance. So uh, managing anxiety, overcoming um, uh, pressure and nerves, etc. And I think it was one of the things that really held me back. So. I ended up going to study sports science at, at Loughborough University and uh, the psychology modules really stood out for me. They they sort of started to allow me to label some of the experiences, some of the feelings, some of the cognitions that I experienced as a performer. Um, and as a result, there was a bit of a light bulb moment where I kind of thought, well, actually, this stuff makes sense and I could probably use this to help other people. After I finished my undergrad degree, I went out to the States to continue to try and play football and kind of realised quite quickly that I wasn't going to really make a living out of it and thought that if I really wanted to do something in sports science and sports psychology, I'd need to get a master's degree. So I came back and studied sports science at, at UIC or Cardiff Met as they, they now are um, and again really focused in on the psychology aspects. Um, and at, at that time, I met a guy called uh, Professor Sheldon Hampton, who um, I'll be, I've become quite close friends with. But at the times, uh, at that time, I became quite close colleagues with him, and he offered to supervise me through my basis supervised experience, which at the time allowed me to train as a sports psychologist. Um, and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a practicing sports psychologist who was um, able to go out and work with athletes, teams. Uh, organizations businesses to really focus in on the mental aspects of performance to to help people to um, um, actualize their goals and and to try and to make sure that they could use their mental uh, aspects of performance as part of their strengths rather than it being something that limited their practice and so that that's really how, how I got into it I suppose but um, over the years I've, I've been able to take positions at universities that have allowed me to continue with my consultancy, but also engage in, in research in the areas of sports psychology and coaching, as well as teach some of those things to to students as well. So I've been fortunate enough to be able to work in sort of all areas of professional practice and academia, really. And you brought up a good point there with um, your background when you were a footballer and the coping skills. In your opinion, do you think football and maybe the players themselves kind of neglect uh, that element of, you know, like the what if they don't make it from academy, obviously, into the first team? Mm. I'm going to have to be careful what I say now because I have quite a few opinions on this. Now, at the professional end of the game, um, I suppose we're seeing a greater influx and use of practitioners now within the area of sports psychology to to help the performance of athletes and and quite a lot's being done particularly on the well-being of athletes um some of it's done around injury prevention so making sure athletes are mentally ready to train because there's there's been quite a lot of research and anecdotal evidence that would suggest that if you're not mentally ready to train you're more likely to make poor decisions during training which are likely to increase the risk of injury so quite a lot's being being done around that. Um, certainly in the Premier, English Premier League, um, I would argue that the majority of first teams will have a sports psychologist working with them, or somebody in that role. They might not necessarily be qualified, which is which is another issue. In the academy setting, with the 
introduction of the EPPP, which is the Elite Player Performance Plan, which is a, um, I think it's an FA um, uh, initiative that governs the way in which academies run and try to develop players. Um, people have different opinions about whether this this has been useful or not, but a big element of it is the psychological development of the player as well. Now, I'm not saying all academies will have psychologists working with them, but coaches certainly have to spend time working on that area of um, a player's development. Now, whether that leads to the coping strategies required in order to, one, be able to perform at academy level, two, be able to transition from academy level into senior football, and then three, be able to stay in senior football, or four, be able to transition out of academy football into a new life, i.e. if a player doesn't make it, I'm not sure. And maybe we do need to sort of examine the quality of the psychological support that these players are getting to really understand whether it's being effective or, or efficacious or not. You know, that's, that's something we probably need to examine. But does it not come back to the um, this underlying issue that all athletes are a little bit short-sighted? And I'm, I'm not generalising. Probably I could probably say that from a personal experience that you that's your initial goal that you want to do that from a young age, mm. and you're totally driven on. Well, this is what I want to do for life, and they kind of don't in some cases, have a backup plan. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that is the case. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that is the case. And uh, as you will know, and as we know, there's, there's kind of nothing wrong with a single-minded single, um, focus on a particular outcome goal, i.e. to gain a professional contract, to uh, perform at a major games, etc. I, I suppose you have to have that if you are going to do the things that you need to do in order to get there. But um, I think a lot of academies now are sort of edu- better educating their players as to the likelihood of that those things happening. So whilst obviously they want players to set those sorts of goals of getting a professional contract, getting into the first team and, and moving on from that, I think players are a lot more realistic now about those particular prospects and I think the the EPPP has, has kind of governed that within clubs. So I know, for instance, lots of clubs do this, but the one that springs to mind is uh, Manchester City have done lots of work on developing the life skills of their scholars. So about uh, so, so life skills in, in terms of developing things like communication, teamwork, resilience. So those skills that can be learned in sport and then transferred to another area of life. But also just the day-to-day living skills like cooking, um, uh, managing yourself inside and outside of the sport, which hasn't really been focused on previously. So those players who don't make it are probably far more prepared now to be successful within within a more normal life, if you like, than they probably ever have been when those things weren't focused on. So I'm not saying it's perfect, um, but I think things are, are getting better. There is a great, there's a great stat. I think it's something like 0.0017% of players who, who start an academy will make it into the first team. And then there's some other stats around something like 75% of players who get offered a contract at 18 have dropped out by the time they're 21. So the attrition rates of, of players staying in the game uh, and then those getting into professional ranks and then those staying in the professional ranks is is really high so I think coaches and clubs and practitioners have started to realize that when you're working with young athletes there's a wider responsibility to develop those other skills through the sport that will help that person to uh, flourish in in a different life as and when they as and when they get there so it's a little bit like like we were talk, talking off air about bringing up reflective practice is a bit like reflecting on the out the outcomes stage by stage isn't it if you, if you look at it in a grand scheme of things yeah definitely reflective practice becomes kind of important because when you're an athlete whether you are a junior athlete or a senior athlete you are operating in a, in a bubble almost because 
you've got your you've got a set of goals that you're working towards trying to achieve and then at some point you're going to have to test your skills against another person i suppose that what that's what makes sports so exciting but so unique is that you know it's, it's contested um, even in even in sports like um, golf where you are almost competing against yourself at some point you've got to score better than the another person in order to um, win a tournament and so because of those factors, you've got to kind of learn from every opportunity that you get because nobody's really going to be able to give you the knowledge that's required in order to get over the winning line. You can train all you like. You can develop the psychological aspects of, of performance. Um, you can look after your nutrition and lifestyle. Those things are kind of give me's, if you like, for elite athletes. But what isn't is about understanding how to be successful, understanding really how you operationalize some of the skills that you've got mentally and physically within performance and how you compete in order to get to where you want to go. Unfortunately, a lot of that knowledge is bound up within experience and reflective practice allows us to try and take that knowledge out of our experiences in order to figure out how to be better or more effective, I suppose, next, next time that we might perform. I think well, it's it's. I think in sport, yeah, you have time to reflect and change, but kind of at elite level, and you're probably going to test it with like from the football side of things. You don't always get that time to make the mistakes. You've got to kind of haphazardly try something new and, but keep along the straight and narrow a little bit as well because. If you do too some that something that's too far out of like an extreme, mm. it could go completely wrong, and obviously that changes the, the outcome. Yeah, de- I, I would agree with that. Um, I don't necessarily agree that we've only got a limited time uh, to learn and to try things. Now, I, I think this is a, this is a key point to make. Really, is that when a lot of people talk about reflection, they kind of think that the outcome of the reflection has to be a new way of behaving, a new way of doing things, uh, you know, almost throw the baby out with the bathwater and try something completely new. But what reflective practice might actually do is just help you to corroborate that what you already know is, is the right thing to know. And it might help you to understand how you might make uh, more opportunities to utilize your strengths more often on a daily basis. Reflective practice isn't continually about changing your philosophy your values your behaviors your approaches to things and it's not just about focusing on those negative aspects of performance i.e something hasn't gone very well so we'll reflect and try and put it right reflection is a is an all of the time thing and it it should occur in my opinion probably more specifically and explicitly on uh, those positive situations where things have gone well because Unfortunately, as human beings, we're kind of not good at doing this thing about celebrating the successes and understanding how we recreate those successes in the future. We get success and we kind of expect it to happen again because we've just been successful. So if I keep doing what I've been doing, I'm going to be successful again, right? Well, unfortunately, it's wrong because every other athlete, like I said, sport is contested. Every other athlete is developing. Every other athlete is looking for the same 1% that you're looking for. So we have to really celebrate and embrace our strength through reflection and utilize how we create opportunities to, to use those more often so that we can continue with the successes that we've had and also that we can use those strengths to, to potentially overcome some of the issues that we might have. So I think it's a bit of a different way of kind of looking at things, really, rather than just, just seeing it as a, um, a real ultimate behavioral change mechanism but in your opinion wouldn't you get more out of a losing situation than winning all the time do you not learn more from those that type of experience it's it's kind of interesting isn't it i mean if you look at i mean um if you look at any quotes from athletes and that they kind of say that all the time yeah i've looked the the great ones i suppose from michael jordan where he talks about i've taken ten thousand winning shots and I've missed them all and I've lost 41 championships, all of this and that. And these are the things that have made me the person that I am. And yeah, of course you can, you are going to naturally 
engage in a process of learning from those things that haven't gone very well, from, from the losses, from the negative situations, because you don't necessarily want them to happen again. You want to get better. Um, and so you, you'll probably feel as though you're learning more, but I don't know. I mean, I, I ask a question of my students and my athletes is that, are you, are you better faced as a performer by identifying those things that are limiting your performance and trying to improve them? Or are you better faced by really identifying what your strengths are and identifying opportunities to utilize those strengths more often? Now, it goes back to the point that you made in, in elite performance. You probably haven't got that long to make massive changes to those things that aren't working very well. So what, what are you going to do? My argument is that you focus on your strengths. You focus on your strengths and you utilize those in a way that might help you to overcome some of those limitations. The issue is, if you ask, if you go and ask 10 athletes what their super strengths are, they will struggle to answer them. They'll, they'll find it easier to tell you what their weaknesses are or their limitations. Now, whether it's an ego thing or whether it's an understanding thing, I'm not going to guess on that. But my, uh, my thoughts would be that it's probably because they don't spend enough time really focusing on those things. They take them for granted. So I don't know whether I've answered your question there. Maybe I've just swerved it. <laughs> no, I would say to some degree, yes. But, but then I think it would be to something like you, you raised that, that question you asked your students and your athletes, you could probably, how I would answer it, it would depend on the situation, but then you'd probably veer one way in one day and then maybe go, go, the, other, go the other way and you're kind of adapting to the environment. Mm. Yeah. Maybe there is no absolute. Maybe it is... A combination of both. I mean, most most of the students will turn around and say, "Yeah, you got to do a bit of both." And I ask them not to sit on the fence because I just want to get a discussion going. But um, it it kind of annoys me that when when you hear like um, it doesn't annoy me, but it kind of frustrates me a little uh, when you hear football managers they've just been sacked and they say, oh, "I'm going to go for a period of reflection and think about what went wrong, etc." And my thought is. Well, if you're reflecting as you're doing the job, maybe you would have found the answers that would have stopped you getting the sack in the first place. So I, my point is that learning has to be ongoing and it has to be equally about uh, both positives and negatives. But if you're going to focus on things, if you're going to focus on one thing more, then maybe you should, we should be focusing on our strengths. We should look to identify those things that are going to allow us to flourish and not just to, not just to survive. But I think with the football managers, they go away and reflect. Well, they also get a massive payoff, so it's not a bad time to be reflecting. No, no, yeah. I suppose uh, you're right. It's football a, probably op- operates in its own little bubble from other sports, doesn't it? Really, because of the amount of money that's in there, and the likelihood is that those managers are going to get another job and and a lot of money again. But well, I wouldn't. I suppose. Say- I wouldn't say it was in. I think it's probably in its own bubble, separate from the rest of sport. Because I can't think of any Olympic sport that you'd get a payoff because you've done a bad job. And if you put it into the real world, if you've not done a good job, you're not going to get. You're not going to get money. You're not going to get paid for it. You're going to get sacked. That's no. it. Yeah. Exactly. No. Yeah. And that that was my point exactly. It's it's very. Uh, it's got its own. Um, its own subculture, I think, separated from from a lot of sports, you know. So it's very difficult to use football as a universal example because it's very different. Obviously, the sports that you've been involved with go through a funding cycle every four years or whatever, and so it's going to have a massive impact on support and and what those organisations are able to do. You're never going to get that in football. So obviously there are d- different pressures and, and different demands placed on people. Yeah. So when I when I talk about football, I appreciate that that I'm talking about a very a very different um, entity. Yeah. But I think the, you could probably generalize that statement a little bit with people that don't like sport and probably could say sports in a bub- bubble separate from the outside world. Oh yeah. World. Yeah, definitely, definitely, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, I mean, if you get into a uh, 
if your expectations are that you're to get into a final and then the expectation is that you're going to go and win it and you don't, you'll get another opportunity. If you're um, in a high-flying business and your job is to clo- uh, get um, a um, contract and then close the contract out and you don't do either, you're probably not going to get the opportunity again for a while or unless you move to another company and it might not be your choice that you move in. So, yeah, of course, you know, I mean sport uh, and we see it all of the time in terms of the way in which people operate is is very different I, I talk a bit about um, the notion of obsession now if you use obsession in daily life as the, just the word what sort of connotations does it have um, single-mindedness yeah so this is coming from you as an athlete now if you said obsession to most people that it would have negative connotations that you're obsessed with something, might be associated with some disorder. Um, whereas in sport, you're right, single-mindedness is that willingness to do anything in order to achieve your goal. And it, it's kind of all right. You're going to put your body through things that you shouldn't normally put it through things. You're going to put your mind through stresses and pressures that it wouldn't normally have to. And it's kind of accepted. It's a form of social deviance uh, uh, is what sociologists would probably refer to it as. And, um, yeah, it's totally different from, from normal society, yet obsession is in sport is something we'd probably praise, whereas obsession in, in normal society is something we'd probably uh, look at more negatively. So the differences between the two, whilst there are similarities between performance in business and performance in sport, I think we have to be very careful about, about how we make those comparisons. But I think I, I, you could probably have a negative connotation to single-mindedness because um, what would be the other word you would use for it? Uh, the person is quite self-centered in a way; they're only thinking about themselves, and yeah, it might have a detrimental effect on their family at large. Um, possibly, like time management if they're in a difficult period with education, be it GCSEs, A-levels, mm. further education and whatnot, and not being able to um, time manage between the two. Okay, I raised it a number of times in different episodes about people have asked me, well, how did you balance your education and sport? I think there's a graph that we I was taught and also the, the other members in the... T- when I was in the potential squad in swimming, you've got uh, what's it? Your sport, your education, and your social life, and one's got to be okay. It's, it's probably a psychological uh, for, um, theory that that's based on. And obviously, we were told, oh, "How old I've been? About fifteen years old." Well, you've got to one's got to give. Okay, well, I want to progress in sport, so that's that's one on on the tr- on the triangle. Uh, well, I was based in continental Europe, so our education goes to eighteen. So that was okay. That's my I got another three years of education at least. So that's that one. So it's my social life has got to go. Okay, I wasn't an extrovert then, and probably not so much now anyway. Mm. So that one to give away was very easy okay when I went on to well was a couple years later I went to university I wanted to sample the experience somewhat okay um, I put this into uh, perspective I did a foundation degree as well so I was at Swansea for five years and I think if I look back I went out more in my final year of my undergraduate than the other years combined. Okay, that's probably not very difficult, but then I think by the time I'd got to the end, I was very much... Well, I know what I need to do in terms of sports. Sports, the easy one, because you've got that planner for a year and you know what you're going to do, Mm. I don't say to the minute, but to, to day to day... And your assignments and uh, lectures are there, so you kind of got a schedule, and you just build one out. And mm. time management was 
It was probably some difficulty things because you've got to allow time for dissertation and things and things to go wrong. And but that was how I look back to. I, I managed to get another element onto the, onto that triangle, but it was very much um, as and when. So it wouldn't be. Well, I wouldn't generalize, but you know, like the extreme students that go out every single night. I say that's probably. Uh, would you say maybe I don't know maybe ten percent of the? Oh, I, I don't know. Else. I can comment on that. <laughs> it, it's quite interesting, though, isn't it? That let's let's take the example of Saracens Rugby Club this season. Um, a lot, quite a lot's been made about how they've managed their season. Um, there's a great article. I don't know whether it's in the Times or the Guardian by Matthew Saeed, the uh, ex-table tennis player who talks about they've been so successful because they haven't concentrated solely on rugby. Now, I don't know whether you're familiar with the story, but every opportunity they've had, they've gone away. They've like uh, gone away on, uh, to um, Europe or whatever for um, a training camp. I think it was a little bit of a jolly, but they've had three days away. They've really sort of knitted together. The cl- going back to what we were talking about previously, the club of, of LinkedIn... Um, uh, lifestyle support and uh, health and well-being professionals to support the players. So they've started to talk about to the players what are you going to do after you finish your rugby career, and they've started to support them in in those particular ventures. And so what they've tried to do is create a club that isn't fully focused. Well, I say fully. It's obviously it's fully focused on the rugby. That's what they're there for. But it's not its sole focus isn't on about seeing that athlete or that person as a as a rugby athlete as a rugby machine but they see him as a person who they employ to perform and they started to think about well how can we get these people to perform better or more consistently and part of that is about providing this holistic support and holistic framework in and around them and their family and their lives outside of rugby and I think you're right, single-mindedness and obsession with athletes is important, but at the same time, having that balance between, well, in work, we'd call it a work-life balance, um, but you, you talk about the triangle, it's about having those those three or maybe even four things into a square um, in place that allows you to focus on, on other things, because if not, it becomes quite, or it becomes very hard and mentally draining to just be focusing on one thing at um, uh, for all of the time, and so you need those other things in your life in order to not only enrich it but also to learn from. You talk about wearing many different hats. I'm sure being a, a student helped with your athletic, with your performance, and your performance helped you being a student, and they probably both helped your social life. So um, one of my PhD students, a guy called John Peel. Um, coined this phrase a, a, an ecology of practice so it's about looking at all the different aspects of your life and learning from those things in order to enrich every other aspect so he says about um, being a father made him a better coach being a coach made him a better husband being a better husband made him a better coach being a better coach made him a better manager and all of these different things sort of interlink that they shouldn't be dealt with in an isolated manner, but they should be dealt with in this this kind of holistic framework of of athlete and person development. Um, and I suppose if you can get to that utopian stage of having a good social life, and it doesn't mean going out all the time, it just means having a social life that that fulfills whatever you enjoy doing. Having a, a good educational work life if your work isn't full time uh, being a full time athlete, and having a, a good sporting life. Then, then you're on to a winner. I think you're going to perform effectively in those different areas. I think it's very hard to do because of the competing pressures that are placed upon you. Like you said, you know, if you spent an extra hour training, that's an extra hour less you had for education or social life. And then you have to make a decision about which which um, loses out. And now, for a lot of people in your position, it's probably the social. For a lot of students, it's probably the education. <laughs> Oh yeah, but I I put I probably put it on in a, from a personal perspective. I probably reflected on it and said, "Well, why am I at university? Well, wanted to get an education. How I got how I got in 
probably the short and narrow because of sport. So mm. I want to prove that it wasn't all that that got me in through the back door. I'm going to prove that I'm, well, to the institution and to myself that I'm able to um, comprehend that level of uh, learning and go from there, okay. Because if I go back to when I was in, in secondary school, I was in two minds whether or not to go to university because, like, well, I don't, I don't think I've got the grades. Uh, mm. I won't get in, and I, I think it was family members. Well, what have you got to lose? So I took the plunge. Worst case scenario, you're going to get a no. So, mm. and I think how I, especially now, reflect on things. What's the worst outcome you're going to get? Is is a no? It's not. It's. I think from from people don't like hearing that word, but. Mm. I think, especially in the business I'm in now, I'd rather you not bat, uh, beat around the bush and say, "Well, blah, you know, X, Y, Z." Um, it's not right for me at this time. Uh, it could be monetary issues. It could be it, I don't want it at all. It's mm. better to be upfront with me instead of going around there because it could be, "Oh, you're thinking it's a maybe." And, and more in all reality, it's probably a no. Well, you're not going to hurt my feelings if you say no out the bat. Okay, it's mm. from a interpersonal perspective, it's not great having the rejection, but you know where you stand. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I suppose you want to know that because because of time, isn't it? You know, like, um, and what are you going to do next? Your life's on hold while you're waiting for an answer, and if it's a maybe, then it's still on hold a little bit, and you, you're just not too sure. So, yeah, I mean, u- universities, uh, it, it's so tough because you're going to get a number of students, um, I don't know, it depends what sort of size course, but we were talking about when I was at Cardiff Met, we're getting 600 students in a year. They're all going to come with very although might might be minor differences, but they're going to come with very different expectations of what things are about. But they're also going to come with very different skills. Some will, will come in with three A's at A level or, or whatever it is now um, uh, and be quite academically gifted. Some will come in with, with um, three C's or, you know, less or whatever. But they'll have other skills. You know, they'll have the, the, the life skills that have been developed through playing sport. They'll have had... Um, experiences of, of being in full-time employment and as a, as a result our, our job particularly in the first year is to make sure that everybody gets up to a standard of academia um, that will allow them to succeed on the course now again I mean this, this is quite difficult because courses are changing as well now they're, they're changing to a greater vocational focus because particularly in sport we want people to be employable in sport once they finish their degree so the academics might, we are pigeonholing some people here, but the academics might struggle with some of those skills, whereas those people who have already had those life experiences will go and flourish. So what we're trying to do, I suppose, is provide a a very standardised programme that's kind of bespoke, which I, I know it's almost a contradict, two contradictory terms, but we want to try and provide a learning pathway that suits all of the individuals who are on our programs whereas at the same time we're qualifying them under the same degree so it, it is a challenge but I suppose people have got to understand that different th- different skills different levels of knowledge and understanding different levels of comprehension different levels of critical thought are all um, uh, valued at a university and I suppose it's our job to try and identify what going back to identifying your strengths identifying what somebody's strengths are and creating opportunities to utilise those strengths and then our job to make sure that they're, if anything is limiting them, that it's not going to have an impact on the outcome of their degree. So it's a challenge all the time. Um, and we don't get it right, but we we do try. We do try. But you, you brought this brought up this notion of standardisation, Brandon. Mm. But isn't that a little bit difficult? Because we touched upon it off-air that not one course is the same. So from an employability standpoint, 
Uh, obviously, what was we say? Every man and his dog wants to do sports science to some degree. Now, it is if like the likes of yourself and other lecturers are. Would you say probably when did you finish your degree as an undergraduate? Undergrad uh, finished in two thousand one. So wouldn't it not from a job perspective? Wouldn't it be easier for you and past generations more easily get a job than say my generation because the competition is little from your perspective was a little bit less and it's. Kinda. Well, I'm probably generalising, but you know, with yeah. more and more universities offering the course, like you said, you you got you had 600 applying at mm. Cardiff Met. Uh, I couldn't remember what Swansea would have been, but then you've got so many universities. Yeah. And so you've got that many people going for that same job, yeah. but there's that, no. That's... But there's sorry to cut you off there. No, that's but right, there's that's no. Right actual standardization between the courses or how could an employer say well this is a better fit when they're not actually possibly studying the same modules yeah so i have a few things about that i mean the 600 students are across degree programs so you'll probably get about 100 110 on coaching 130 140 on sports science 100 on um, strength conditioning rehabilitation and massage so they are across the sports science sorts of courses uh, at Swansea I think there are around 60 on the on the sports science course but you're right there are probably more people doing it now than that there were back when I took sports science but I tell the story I'm, I, I'm, I've probably told you uh, when you're an undergraduate though, all those years ago one of the worst days of my ago. <laughs> you probably can't remember <laughs> Well, um, one of the worst days of my academic career was my graduation at Loughborough. Obviously, it's a big thing that everybody looks forward to. I was kind of happy. I'd, I'd, well, I'd achieved a 2-1. I'm sure if I'd uh, stopped playing football a little bit and stopped messing about, I could have achieved a first. But I was happy with a 2-1. And on graduation day, it was like a picket line of people coming across the stage with a sports science or sports science-related degree. And I was kind of thinking, oh, my days, what separates me from all these kids? Now, the thing that you guys have got that we didn't have is opportunity. There are only a few jobs. Now, it might still seem like that, but there are far more jobs now in, in sports science or sports science related positions than there were back in 2001. So whilst there are more people coming through, and it's not proportional. I totally agree agree with that. The amount of people who are becoming or getting sports science degrees increasingly far more rapidly than the amount of jobs. But there are more jobs out there. So you're right. I mean, you are you are under pressure now. Is um, for me, a master's degree has become the new undergraduate degree. You kind of need that, you know. And then a PhD has become the new master's. And um, the level of the level of um, credibility given to those different qualifications is changing all the time now oh, i forgot what i was going to say but oh going back to the point about employability across the degree programs degrees are there to serve a number of different purposes it's not necessarily about the type of degree that you've got but gaining a degree demonstrates to an employer a couple of things number one that you've been able to study for three years I'm not saying be committed for three years, but study <laughs> for three years. Uh, number two, that you've been able to achieve against a set of relatively standardised criteria. So the, um, there's a governing body for universities across the UK. Um, I can't remember its name. The, the QAA is the, uh, the acronym. Um, and they uh, put some benchmark. They've identified some benchmark statements that students have to achieve in sport-related degrees, and they do this for all degrees, but in sport-related degrees at levels four, five, and six, so first, second, and third year. And so, all university programmes have to adhere to those QAA standards. Now, how those standards are met, or what a degree programme looks like, can be quite bespoke. Uh, within sports science, you are generally going to get very similar things, but obviously different programs, different lecturing staff, different universities will have a slightly different philosophy about how those 
subjects, how the subject matter should be taught and and in what order, etc. So you will get a slightly different degree programme in the same subject at different universities. What, what it says to an employer is that this person has been able to achieve, they've been able to be time managed, they've been able to be organised, uh, they've been able to think relatively critically, they've met those QAA benchmark standards. So it, whether you've done sports science at Loughborough or whether you've done sports science at Edinburgh or uh, Exeter, even if the degree is slightly differently, different and what you've learned slightly different, essentially it's saying to an employer the same thing, that, that you've been relatively successful at, at engaging that level of academic um, qualification. I suppose what will separate a person who has achieved a sports science degree at one institution and another is how they present themselves in the interview and everything else that they did during their degree programme. So we talk quite a lot about enriching enriching your CV now. Um, the university that I work at now, the University of South Wales, have done this really, really well. They've, they've linked in a lot of vocational qualifications directly into their degree programmes. So, for instance, they run a, a football performance coaching degree um, where a, uh, a student will be able to do a foundation degree for two years and gain a level three coaching qualification. Uh, sorry, a level two coaching qualification. And then they can top up and do their full degree, but also work towards a level three qualification at the same time. So our students will be coming out with a degree and a level three football coaching qualification, a B licence. Uh, we do the same in rugby and in our general sports degrees, we offer the opportunity for students to jump on board with other vocational qualifications. Uh, we just signed a deal with Huddle. I don't know whether you've heard of Huddle. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the company that um, governs sports code. And uh, we'll be linking in, um, huddling to some of our degree programmes where our students are able to gain um, nationally recognised qualifications in performance analysis. So the marketplace for degrees is changing. Um, of course, people are paying a shed load more money now than they used to. Um, around, well, on average, £27,000. So for £27,000, students are becoming more like consumers. So we have to make sure that um, our degree programmes are not only academically relevant, but also employability ready, if that makes any sense. I'm not too sure that those two terms are the, the right things, but I think you get the meaning. So the student comes out with the level of knowledge that we'd expect from an academic student, but also they come out with their skills, knowledge and experience to go and be a most efficient and effective employee at the same time. And uh, that's a challenge that we're all facing, you know, so. And you're probably a good one to, to answer this question. Obviously, you've worked at the likes of Swansea, Cardiff Met and now University of South Wales. How different are the three programmes from each other? Uh, yeah, very different, very, very different, which, I mean, it's been great for me because I, I've been able to be a part of and shape things at, at two of the universities, and I'm sure it will be the same at, at University of South Wales. I've only been there for for a couple of weeks now. Um, yeah, very different. I mean, Swansea, you had a, a, a straight sports science degree. You didn't have any options. You took the modules. Um, we tried to link in. I think we... We linked in a real practical element to it. There were a lot of lab sessions for physiology, psychology. Obviously, we did quite a lot of practical coaching. Um, so I think there was a good balance there between theory and practice. I think that, that was uh, one of the strengths of the, the degree at Swansea. At Cardiff Met um, or UIC, the programmes went through um, a couple of significant changes during my time there. But by and large, students had a greater... Uh, menu of options to select from so there'd be some core modules in all degree programs and then students would be able to select their own bespoke pathway based on um, the way in which they wanted to shape their degrees basically so even a person coming out with a sports science degree at Cardiff Met um, might look very different as a um, in, in terms of what they know and what they've studied to the next person who came out with a sports science degree so with those sorts of options, it offered a real bespoke learning pathway, but at the same time, we had to make sure that um, all of the programme outcomes were achieved 
depending on it, sorry, irrespective of which options a student took. So it was a lot more complex in terms of the matrix of, of uh, modules that a student could take. There is a a large theory to practice element at um, the university, but I would argue that it was probably a little bit more academically and theoretically focused. I suppose we were looking at developing performers, but we're also looking to develop sports scientists um, more ready to go off the bat, I suppose, than uh, than Swansea, which is a little bit more holistic. Uh, and then at University of South Wales, like I said, they have taken... Uh, they've really done a great job of making their degree programs vocationally based. So linked into national governing body coaching qualifications, linked into national awards, etc. Uh, so they have a real strong work-based learning, work experience aspects to their, their degree programs. Um, and they offer students a different ways, different ways of learning for their degrees. So they are they are very very similar, but at the same time also very different. So what I can take from that, I would say, from, if I had my both my academic and sports hats on, uh, Cardiff Met and the University of South Wales are set up similar to virtually what a performance pathway is. You kind of put on this pathway, okay, there's going to be... Uh, well, you probably see it more in Paralympic sport, Athletes transition from one sport to the uh, the other now is well, almost commonplace. So you can kind of see the similarities. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, uh, it's great. I think it's happening more as well in in able body sport, isn't it? I think you see a lot of um, a lot of sports go um, looking for talent in in other sports. I don't know whether I've worded that very well at all, but I was out at the AIS uh, recently and. Um, one of their rowers uh, came to do a presentation um, and she was talking about her transition from being a, I think she was a runner, but she got a terrible knee ligament injury. So she went and started rowing and won gold at, um, in Rio. Um, and I suppose you're seeing it more often, but you're right. In Paralympic sports, yeah, obviously uh, there's a lot of crossover and a lot of transition, which... I think it just shows how good a lot of those Paralympians are able to do that or, or take part in those sports, are able to cope with the different pressures. I suppose elite performance is elite performance, but learning the different rules. I mean, you, you've been involved in rowing, wheelchair rugby, I mean, the, uh, volleyball. I think they're so many different sports. It's uh, Oh, yeah, well, that's it. it's that adult age my family said to me. It's, what was it, the... Uh... Jack of all trades, trades of none. So it's like, well, <laughs> that's looking at it from a negative perspective. It's like, mm, yeah, some truth in that. It's like, well, I've not been able to specialise solely into one sport. <clears throat> but you could probably look at it from a positive uh, connotation of that and say, I'm going to try not to be too egotistical here, um, that you very, very you must be fairly talented to be able to be, I'd say, bringing down a notch, somewhat successful across across the board. Yeah, I would have said you haven't done too bad for yourself, fella. <laughs> well, I I think maybe when I retire from sport, I probably look to back on my career and say, well, I've not achieved everything everything I set out to to do, but. On reflection, not had a bad. I didn't have a bad career. It's no. okay. Everybody in sport wants, let's say, well, for, say the Olympic and Paralympic movements wants to get that overall goal of the gold medal. Okay, if it was easy for everybody to, to get it, it would, it would, it would kind of diminish its um, kind of. Imp- prestige to somewhat it's if it's that easy to get okay well everybody can do it so it's yeah i look probably on the i probably looked at my career in its entirety and say well if i would speak to myself as a 15 year old when i was starting out and say well this is where you'll get by the time you're when did i retire uh, at late twenties, 
would would you be satisfied with that? It's like, well, maybe that teenager may, may not be. It's like, well, you didn't do as... That's not where I wanted to, to be when I'd finished. Yeah. But it's like, well... It's looking probably at the grand scheme of things, okay. I had the opportunity to travel the world, uh, meet different in, in, interesting people, um, do multiple multiple sports. But then what really kind of springs to mind from that time is probably less so the training aspect of things, and it's probably those social experiences of interacting with different people, different cultures, being in different countries mm. that you probably miss more so. And I think when it's, you could probably put this into business and general life. It's when you move from somewhere, it's probably those personal connections that you miss. Cause I've been, cause I grew up in the military environment, in Belgium, people say, oh, do you miss, miss the place? It's like, no, because with the military, they're moving on average every three years, so you're going to get new people all, yeah, all course, during that yeah. period. And from the time my family was there, there might be one or two families that I knew growing up. So it's like, no, you, you, the place was regarded as home when I was younger, but I think once my family moved back to the UK, where we're based now, is home. Mm. And that's where I grew up. And it was probably the only thing you'd miss is the actual people. And I think it comes back to that, it's that social interaction that you probably miss and not the environment. Yeah. I I think that's that's really interesting. It's a really nice way of putting it as well, because I suppose for those people who aren't going to compete at that level and uh, who are fans of sport, they kind of don't get that they, because everybody's just looking at the outcome and the performance and the gold medal and the trophies, etc. They don't get all of the, the other stuff that kind of comes with it and all the other stuff that goes into it as well, you know. And um, I think the interesting thing is kind of bringing it back to reflection is about if you're able to have very varied experiences, whether they be in your sport or whether they be in your life or um, uh, with, with, and whichever walk of life we're talking about, you've got a greater opportunity to learn about things. And that's that goes back to that concept of this ecology of practice that we were talking about, is that if you do the same thing all of the time and, and you don't experience different things, you can get very stale and get very bogged down. You, you don't create the opportunities for you to generate the knowledge that you need in order to be ultimately creative within within whatever activity is that you're doing. So as, a, as an academic, if all I did was sit and write research papers all day, eventually I'd become very stale because I wouldn't have experienced the things that I'm writing about. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be able to re- enrich the papers with... Um, personal insights and, and um, critical understanding from what I understand of the environment because I wouldn't have been in them. And it's the same with sports people. So I think it's it's so important to make sure that, uh, that a sports person has many different aspects to what they do. Now, I'm not saying that if you're a, uh, an aspiring uh, golfer, footballer, tennis player, whatever, that you should go out and try loads of other sports. And I'm not saying that you should go out and have this massive social life and don't listen to your fitness coaches and get the rest, etc. But I do think that you you need to have the other elements. When I, when I talk to athletes as a practitioner, I talk about making sure that they've got anchors within their diary. of, uh, And these anchors can be absolutely anything. It could be settling down to watch a TV program that you don't normally get to watch. It could be going to the, going to the cinema with friends. It could be reading a book that, that you don't feel as though you've got time for. But you put these anchors in your diary that allow you to, uh, that, you, that you look forward to. Because generally when you're training for an elite uh, level of performance, you are so um, embroiled in this process of training, rest, recovery, training, rest, recovery, performance, that you kind of forget to do all of the things that actually make you kind of happy. Now, I'm not saying performance doesn't make you happy and training doesn't make you happy, but there are other things that also make you happy. And 
I think being able to enrich your life through that and learn through those other experiences will really help you to uh, actualize what you want to achieve in sport or in life. And unfortunately, too often we get bogged down by doing things uh, because it's the same thing to be doing, isn't it? You know, if you if you're sat on your backside not doing anything, then you're being lazy. Well, actually, you could be sat down on your backside trying to contemplate how you might tackle a problem that you face with more effectively, more efficiently. And by doing that, when you go to tackle it, you do uh, solve it more efficiently, which means that you probably save time in the long run. So we've almost got to try and change this culture of the way in which we see positive behavior and activity itself. And I'll, get, I'll give you an example to try and elaborate on me waffling on that. There's a famous example of an Australian sports psychologist at the Olympics who got a photo taken of them sat down reading the paper. So they were sat down reading the paper and the papers ridiculed the practitioner because they were seen to be doing nothing. Well, this is the issue that they've got. When you go away as a practitioner to a major games, you're pretty much on call 24-7. So if you're on call 24-7 and you're getting very little sleep and you're all over the place, etc., essentially, as a practitioner, as a psychologist, you're a performer too. You need to be rested. You need to be able to make good decisions. You might be taking on a load of baggage from athletes. You have to deal with the emotional uh, aspects of the job. So if you're not rested and you don't utilize any downtime that you might get effectively, you're not going to be in the best place to perform as a practitioner. So all this person was doing was utilizing the couple of minutes they had spared to read a paper, sort of take a load off, and they're actually getting ridiculed for it. Now, my argument would be is this, is that if you're always at the coal face, digging away at the coal, what might happen eventually is you hit the wrong bit and you bring the whole lot down around you which might be great, but it's going to hurt. Sometimes, you, like an artist at an easel, you need to step back. You need to see what's going on. You need to make sense of things. And you need to understand what might be the best course of action to take based on what you're seeing. And you can't do that when life's about right up in your face. Sometimes you've got to take that step back. And unfortunately, our culture is to be seen to be doing things. My argument would be that reflection is one of those things that you should be doing and therefore taking time to reflect and make sense of things is probably going to make you more effective and efficient in the long run i think that's a good analogy and a good point to take home so what we'll do now brendan is i think we'll wrap the podcast up for this week so what thanks for taking the time out your busy schedule to come on the mindset game not a problem it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for having me and the last po- uh, question before I let you go is, if you had to summarize this episode into one sentence, what would that be? It would be a long sentence without a breath. <laughs> uh, if I had to summarize it. Um, I, I suppose the key message, whether it's a summary or not, would probably probably be this, is make sure you take the time to learn from the experiences that, that you're having. But... When I talk about learning from your experiences, I'm talking also about learning about those things that are really positive, that are, that are really strength-based, because they can really help your practice to flourish. If you're always thinking about negative things in negative ways, it will lead to negative behaviors. Focus on learn about your strengths and ut- identify ways of utilizing those more often within your daily lives in whatever walk of life you're in and it will help you to be happier and more successful. I think that's a great point to take home, Brendan. So once again, thanks for coming on the show. Not a problem at all. If you wanted some bonus content, I have now set up a Facebook group where you can interact with both the guests and I. The name of this so-called group is Mindset Game. So why not come over and check it out for yourself? And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review in iTunes as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.